We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another edition of The Water Cooler. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Australia's universities are in trouble. A decade or more of aggressively seeking revenue from foreign students has changed the character of universities and left them vulnerable to external disruption like the COVID-19 border bans. The ranking system, which rewards university citations far more highly than the quality of the teaching, has distorted the allocation of resources and turned academic research into an exercise in citation harvesting. Universities have become top-heavy in administration, leading to untold frustration from students and teaching staff alike. And to top it all, universities are responsible for the lab leak that allowed the culturally destructive virus commonly known as woke to escape into the community. Are our institutes of higher learning broken beyond repair? Should they be abandoned in favour of other sources of epistemological excellence less remote from the community? That's the question that Salvatore Baboni sets out to answer in his new book, Australia's Universities, Can They Reform? And I'm delighted that the author is able to join me in person in the MRC's Sydney office. Salvatore Baboni, welcome to Watercooler and thank you for your book. Well, look, first, your credentials. You are a member of one of the few minority groups against whom prejudice is still allowable. Uh, that is to say you're a sociologist. Uh, you earned your PhD and Master of Science in Applied Mathematics at John Hopkins University. You're a, you are an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney and an Adjunct Scholar at the Centre for Independent Studies. In 2019, you wrote a paper for the CIS that proved prescient, the China student boom and the risks it poses to the Australian universities. Your new book, of course, is an extension of that. So the point to make is... Salvatore, this was entirely predictable. The crisis, the, the point that we've come to, brought about by the over-reliance on foreign students, was easily foreseeable. Why didn't the universities see it coming and why didn't they take action to prevent it? Uh, I didn't predict in that 2019 paper that within six months, universities would be all online, borders would be closed, students would be shut out. I no, but we knew the, we knew the model I was vulnerable. Risk. Mm. It was, the risk was not only foreseeable, it was foreseen. Many of us were talking about it, were writing about it. Even the university vice chancellors and the group of eight were responding to these criticisms, so they were well aware that the risks were out there. They downplayed the risks. They said that they were well positioned to deal with any potential drop in international student numbers. And ironically, I have to say, it turned out they were right. Uh, when the coronavirus pandemic came and the border closures came, in fact, Australian universities did not lose tons of money in international student fee revenue. They lost tons of money on their investment portfolios. <laughs> the big, uh, the, the group of eight universities collectively lost more in terms of foregone investment revenue than they did in terms of foregone international student revenue. My own university, University of Sydney, actually experienced an increase in international student fee revenue in 2020 over 2019. That was accomplished by converting undergraduate students into postgraduate students, just convincing those who were able to get into the country to stay by doing one more degree. So I'll happily admit I was wrong. 
what I discovered in researching this new book, Australia's Universities, Can They Reform?, was that the corruption was much deeper than I realized. Universities weren't actually making money hand over fist with international students. They were losing money on international students. Well, that's new to me. <laughs> How could they lose money given that they're, they're charging what seem to be quite large uh, tuition fees and uh, often on courses like, say, business studies where you know, overheads are small? They're charging what seem like very high tuition fees to Australians whose tuition is subsidized by the Australian government. If you compare the tuition fees being paid by international students in Australia to those being paid in the U.S., U.K., and Canada, you find they're probably about equal, maybe a little higher than in the, uh, I'm sorry, maybe a little lower than in the U.K. They're much lower than in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and the problem here is that Australian universities, like UK universities, which are now learning from Australia how to play this game, they are cannibalizing the campuses, the classrooms, the, even the, the very research that's being done and paid for by the Australian government, by the Commonwealth, and just stuffing international students into the classrooms on the top of all of that. Essentially, you, you build one library for the whole university that's charged off to the Commonwealth. Now, not directly. It's charged off indirectly through a variety of means. But ultimately, it's the taxpayers and the Australian students who are paying for that library. And then you throw the doors open and you let international students study there. But the international students are not being charged for that, which is to say the costs of running the library are not being factored in when setting international student tuition. Universities seem to be setting international student tuition simply on the basis of variable costs. You know, how, mm. many extra how many extra tutors do we need to accommodate the extra students without accounting for the fixed costs of running the universities in the first place? And what we hear time and time again uh, is that this is changing the character of universities. So if you do as Sydney University did, uh, and more than a third of your undergraduates are from, not just from overseas, but from one country, China, it inevitably changes campus life, it changes the learning experience, uh, and makes the experience for domestic students uh, very different, probably worse. Is that true? Not only is it true, it degrades the educational experience for international students themselves. Our international students are not able to do what they primarily come here for. They're not able to learn English. They're not able to make friends in Australia. They're not able to become acculturated to Australian and Western society. And the reason is that there are just too many of them. My Chinese students routinely complain to me that they have no opportunity to make local connections because everyone in their classes is Chinese. Uh, we have reached the point, a, a tipping point, where we admit so many, not just international students, but so many students from China or from places that speak Chinese. So from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, from among local uh, permanent residents of Australia whose children speak Chinese. That is, there's so many Mandarin speakers on campus that there are now two cultures on campus, an English-speaking mm -hmm. culture and a Mandarin-speaking culture. And I do not blame the Chinese students for that. It's not their fault. Uh, if I went to study in China and I wanted to learn Chinese, but 40% of the people in my classes 
were also English, native English speakers, I probably wouldn't learn much Chinese either. Who do we blame? The administrators, I guess, for making the decisions that allowed such a large intake of Chinese students in the first place. Australians simply have no idea how far international student enrollments in Australia depart from international norms. Uh, in the United States, it's considered extreme for a university to have 15% international students, of whom perhaps 10% might be Chinese. Uh, there is no public university in the entire United States that has more than 20% international students. In Australia, 20% of international, international students would put you in the lower half of Australian universities yeah. in terms of international students. Uh, it is a uniquely Australian problem. Roughly, pre-pandemic, roughly 2% of the entire Australian population consisted of international students. Now, you can't come close to that in any other country. Or another interesting statistic is the ratio of outbound to inbound, inbound to outbound international students. We in English-speaking countries are used to taking more international students than we send out. The ratio in most countries like the US, UK is five to one, seven to one. Here in Australia, it's 33 to one. That is 33 times as many students come into Australia as go out. This defeats the whole purpose of international education. I mean, I'm an educator. I'm international. I'm American living here in Australia. Uh, the purpose, those of us who sincerely believe in international education, believe in it because of the opportunities for intercultural learning. It's the opportunity yeah. to get to know people of other cultures. Well, that no longer happens in mm. Australian universities. Well, I'm speaking to Salvatore Pavoni about his new book, Australia's Universities, Can They Reform? We're, we're hardly uh, 10 minutes into this podcast and already I think the answer to your question may be, can they reform, may be becoming a little bit clearer. But look... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the answer the, is no. The, um, let's argue that the, the problems around uh, large numbers of Chinese students is something that was uh, growing and apparent before COVID. COVID's brought it to a head, perhaps. But it's also brought to a head, I think, some other th uh, huge issues which probably were not being, uh, or risks were not being thought about uh, clearly enough. A huge shift to online learning. And, of course, this has thrown up the idea that, well, why do you need to get your learning from the University of Sydney when you can get it from Harvard? And, and you write, of course, Australian universities ignore their international on online competition at their peril. So is higher education now a, a basically a, a trade-exposed industry that is vulnerable to foreign competition? Well, it's the only place it's invulnerable is at the undergraduate level, and that's because of Commonwealth-supported places. And if there's one area that needs reform in Australia, it's reform of Commonwealth funding for Commonwealth-supported places. But the universities are likely to lose a substantial portion. They may already be losing a substantial portion of their postgraduate coursework students. Simply put, why should you do an online master's course in computer science at an Australian university mm. when you can do an online master's course in computer science from MIT or Stanford, uh, which probably will, well, might be better taught, will certainly have much more cachet on the job market. I think we're ignoring 
that threat at our peril. If we say the only reason you should study in Australia is that the government is going to fund it, well, that, that's a really poor reason. And, and ultimately, I can imagine the government giving students portable funding to mm. take to their institution of choice as opposed to uh, funding places specifically at Australian universities. Now, that's not going to happen anytime soon for undergraduate study, but as things stand, Australian students have strong incentives, if everything is online anyway, uh, to simply go overseas. And one of those incentives may be that there is, there is evidence of growing dissatisfaction from university students about the education they're receiving. You cite figures in there uh, to show that um, dissatisfaction is, is, a, is a huge factor. Why don't the universities address this? I mean, if you're dissatisfied with any other product, the provider of that product wakes up to it pretty quickly and, and lifts their game. Is that happening in universities or are they just not aware or, uh, you know, what, why, why do we see no focus on standard of education in that well, sense? Where else are you going to go? Uh, satisfaction, overall student satisfaction with Australian universities is pretty stable at around 80%. It dipped due to coronavirus. It'll come back up. I'm mm. pretty confident about that. The place where there is extreme student dissatisfaction is with engagement. It's with the campus experience. If you look at the various subscores of student satisfaction on the quilt surveys, quality indicators in learning and teaching, the one that stands out like a sore thumb is engagement, which effectively means students are not happy with their tutorials, they're not happy with their libraries, they're not happy with their campus experience, they're not happy with the overall attachment to the university. Uh, now, contra contrasting that, we often hear that employers are very satisfied, however, with what Australian universities are doing. Even that is just a matter of where else can you go, because the question we ask employers is, well, would you hire someone again from this same university? Well, <laughs> where else are you going to go? If you're in Sydney, you're going to hire yeah. people from uh, you know, Sydney, uh, UNSW, and UTS, and Macquarie. If you're in Wollongong, you're going to hire people from Wollongong. If you're in Melbourne, you're going to hire people from Melbourne and Monash. I mean, there's not much choice. Uh, I don't think either, I think neither employers nor students are happy with the way education is done. Uh, they're not complaining about the quality of instruction. And I don't think that's fundamentally the problem at Australian universities. It's not the quality of instruction that, that's abysmally low. It's the overall student experience that really is compromised by, well, by administrators not focusing on it. There's very little incentive for administrators to make sure that either students or employers are happy. Well, lack of accountability is, is something you come back to time and time again in the book and, and of course this is always a delicate balancing issue with any independent cultural institution I mean we see it with the ABC for instance uh, how do you get the balance right between giving it independence and also making it accountable for the taxpayers dollars it absorbs you go back and have a look at the original purpose of the universities uh, when New South Wales set up the University of Sydney in 1850, it did so for the purpose of ascertaining by means of examination the person who shall acquire proficiency in literature, science and art, and of rewarding them by academical degrees. I love that. The University of Melbourne follows who three years later to promote sound learning in the colony of Victoria. All well and good. But there's a sort of mission creep 
which you draw attention to. <laughs> you say no state legislature ever chartered a university for the purpose of generating export revenue or to undertake research in isolation from teaching. There is a tremendous emphasis on chasing rankings. You want to be higher on the international rankings, presumably partly in order to attract overseas students. But the effect of that is, of course, you start um, becoming very focused on the ranking system, which is largely focused on citations for research, which is, doesn't really tell you anything at all or any tangentially about the standard of teaching. But that's become the metric which drives universities. And uh, it, this is distorting the allegation of resources in, and, and actually diminishing teaching quality in that people are focusing on research. Would that be a fair summary of the, that particular issue? The oldest principle of management theory is what gets measured gets done. Yeah. And so once rankings came to exist, we haven't had rankings for long. The first international rankings only came out in uh, 2003. So these are not uh, long-standing metrics for universities. But once they came out, vice chancellors wanted to score well in them, no surprise. Now, we've had a rankings mania in Australia. All group of eight universities are in the global top 100 on one of the major research rankings. Uh, more than half of all Australian universities can claim to be in the global top 100 on some ranking. <laughs> Think about that. Let that set in. More than half of all the universities in Australia are in the global top 100. You can put it on their website. Uh, they can find a ranking to do it. The problem with ch chasing rankings success is precisely that. What gets measured gets done. What The corollary is what doesn't get measured doesn't get done. So the most prominent rankings, the Shanghai rankings, so the academic ranking of world universities, which come out of Shanghai Jiao Tong University, a, a group there, uh, those rankings focus almost entirely on big science research. Uh, if you hire people who are on a list of highly cited researchers, there actually is a list, you can go download it mm -hmm. from Clarivate, the education consultancy, you'll get tons of points on the Shanghai rankings. Well, what does that mean? It means that Australian vice chancellors have simply gone out and made offers to people around the world who are highly cited researchers. Now, I guarantee you that most of those people are not teaching in the classroom. They're not doing research of strategic interest to Australia for the Australian government. They are simply people who've been bought to come do their research in Australia. Is that a problem? Well, I mean, it makes Australia look good on the international rankings, but it does very little else for the university. Now, if Australia's universities had risen in the rankings through fantastic management, through teamwork, by getting people to collaborate and work together to improve their research and to get it into more prestigious journals, I would have no complaint about the rankings mania. But when they do it simply by buying in expertise... And I have a lot of evidence in the book to suggest that all Australian universities have done since the rankings mania started was import people who contributed to their ranking success. Well, there's little reason for public universities uh, to be doing that. There's little reason for the Commonwealth to be supporting that kind of behavior. Unfortunately, the Commonwealth seems to encourage it. Education ministers like to see that they have top global universities under their control, and they may probably don't realize 
how the universities achieved that success. When you're looking at reform for the universities, of course, the the classic approach to reform is if 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 a government program isn't working, then you must double the spending. You know <laughs> uh, that that the most urgent reform is to put more money into it and. Um, and of course, this is said of universities. It's, you know, the, the arguments come back. You know, they're running on a pittance. They're underfunded, and they need more money if we want to be a country of great excellence. Is that true? It's absolutely not true. Uh, by international comparisons, Australian university research is better funded than the OECD average. It's better funded than the European Union average. It's better funded than the average United States university, and it's better funded than the average UK university. On top of that, Commonwealth support for students, uh, I'm sorry, for students and Commonwealth support for for university-level education has been stable or rising for the last 20 years. There was a period between 2012 and 2019 when Commonwealth support per domestic student slowly declined by about 1% per year, but that was more than made up for a almost 2% per year rise in the number of domestic students. Uh, in, in fact, Australian funding for universities today is at an all-time high. Whether you express that in absolute terms, inflation-adjusted terms, per-student terms, it's simply not true that Australian universities are underfunded. Now, they are funded less than they'd like to be, but I think that could be said of any institution, public or private, anywhere in the world. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Well, they've been on a, a growth trajectory probably since 1957 with the Murray Review uh, introduced by Robert Menzies and and really the the great expansion of higher education that began then. Uh, it, it 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 may well have meet, reached a peak now. There may well be some uh, shrinkage. Uh, I wonder whether that's such a bad thing. I mean, do we actually are we sending too many people to university? Uh, I you know when, when you take you back to Murray Review. The Murray Review said uh, I think it said that. Uh, uh, the estimated that something like 12% of Australian students had the ability to benefit from university. Now we've gone way beyond that, of course. We went to 20, 30, 40 plus. That will change the character of university too, won't it, if, 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 the, if the quality or rather I should say the characteristics of the students changes. Look, I'm an educator and you're not going to get me to say that we should be educating fewer people. Uh, I'd like to see everybody getting a university degree, whether it's economically useful for them or not. But I'd like to see that happening in an economically efficient way. What Australian universities are doing right now under the incentives in place from the Commonwealth government is offering 
a smaller number of students multiple degrees. They're keeping them enrolled at the undergraduate level for not just three years, but four, five, six, in some cases, seven years, getting double degrees, or in some cases, triple degrees at the undergraduate level, because that's what the Commonwealth will pay for. What they should be doing is getting everyone in Australia who wants one a three or four year standard undergraduate degree, after which they can move on to postgraduate study. Now, are all of those undergraduate degrees economically useful? Are, are, do they pay back in financial terms? Probably not. Uh, but as a liberal educator, I'd like to see students spending time just thinking about themselves in the world, whether or not it's economically remunerative for them to do so. But we have to make choices in public spending, don't we? We, we, we have to make trade-offs. And uh, what you're supposing there would be, a, you know, sounds a nice thing, but it'd be, it would mean a lot more money being spent on higher education. Sure. We might equally ask, is high school worth it? <laughs> We've simply, you know, at, at one point we simply said, you know, we, it was only elementary schools required, then it was only 12 years are required. And, well, I see no reason why an increasingly wealthy society shouldn't say eh, 16 years of education and that's what we'll pay for. Uh, my beef isn't with the number of students going to university. It's with the inefficiency and that of the way we support them. But are we giving the wrong kind of education? I mean, there are other ways of giving people post-school education. You know, there, 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 there are trade certificates or a practical, you know, you can go and get a practical skill and uh, actually probably earn a lot more money than you do at universities. Right. And yet there is a huge emphasis on universities, not just the prestige angle, but, the, you know, you often hear students saying, well, I felt channeled to go into that. That was what I've expected. But to... And yet, you know, we need more practical skills. You can, you know, it's, it's no problem finding yourself uh, a lawyer in any suburb in Sydney, but you'll struggle to find a plumber on a Saturday. What, why aren't we better um, giving children or giving students, I should say, a wider option of higher education and actually emphasising the benefit, you know, as David Goodhart writes in, in his recent book, not just of manual skills but of the caring professions where we where we increasingly need good uh, motivated educated people going in the simple fact is that most students learn very little in their university careers and i'm not just talking about sociology students <laughs> i mean <laughs> I, I i mean students in in economics and engineering even in uh, even in the health professions and what happens is people learn on the job you could get rid of universities entirely and just have internships to have people learn on the job. Uh, again, I'm not here, and I'm not writing this book to say that we shouldn't have university education. I'm writing this book to say that if we're going to have it, we should do it efficiently. We should fund it efficiently. We shouldn't believe the mendacious claims for ever greater budgets with ever less uh, accountability. Uh, what we need is for the public. And, and here, look, I'm not Australian, but I am an Australian taxpayer. And I would like to see my tax money being used efficiently. Now, we can debate the goals, whether we should have 20% of Australians going to universities, 50% or 100%. We can debate that. But one thing we shouldn't be debating is whatever percentage we're spending to universities, should we be doing it in a cost-effective way? And I think the obvious answer to that is yes. Yeah, very hard to disagree with that statement. The other uh, objection that people have increasingly to universities, and I want your, your honest assessment as somebody in the university sector, 
that they are cesspools of weird lefty academic <laughs> um, theory uh, that that somehow is adopted from some weird brand of French philosophy and uh, it's cor- essentially corrupting our youth and sending them out with some very damaging ideas. The charge of corrupting the youth is as old as education Indeed. itself. Let's not forget that that Socrates was convicted for corrupting the youth yep. of Athens. And you know what? He, he probably was. Uh, look, there are a lot of problems with what's taught in universities. And I think most of those problems come down to a lack of a- accountability, a lack of community involvement with universities. When, when my colleagues, and I don't just mean my sociology colleagues, I mean my colleagues broadly across the university, say community, they think the only form of community is a an activist nonprofit uh, advocating for social justice. Well, I have news for you. Um, the business community is part of the Australian community. They're the employers. Uh, the uh, civil society organizations uh, are part of Australia's community. Think tanks are part of Australia's community. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's lots in the community beyond simply a small number of activist organizations. And I think the political problem we have in the university, it, not just my university, in universities in general, is that academics tend to reflect their own politics in the classroom, and not just in sociology and gender studies classrooms, in, you know, in science classrooms, in engineering classrooms, in business classrooms, believe it or not. Uh, people reflect their own politics. Instead, they should be thinking, what is the broader community that I'm serving? And that's why I'm not really a big fan of increased university autonomy. It it may sound strange to hear an academic saying what we need is the government on our backs. But we need the government on our backs. This is a democracy. It's a democratic country. The, The government is the mechanism through which the people regulate their institutions. The University of Sydney, my university, is not a private, self-funded institution. It's a public institution in the public service. Well, where's the public oversight? And I'd really like to see the state of New South Wales doing a lot more to oversee and regulate my university. And the same could be said for all universities around Australia. The state governments should know what's going on in their universities, and they should be paying attention, and they should be taking a much more active role. Uh, I'm surprised to hear an adjunct scholar at the Centre for Independent Studies talk about more regulation. But Oh, not regulation, oversight. There's a big difference. I want them to be, I would love nothing more than to see members of the Legislative Assembly attending classes as observers mm-hmm. on a regular basis to see where the public money is going. I mean, whenever someone opens a new bridge or highway, they go down to see the new bridge. <laughs> they want to see the new shopping center open. Well, come to my class. See what I'm teaching. You start dropping in. Get involved. I'm not asking for more regulation. I'm asking for more engagement. And more engagement, presumably, with business too. Same thing. Absolutely the same thing. I would love to have business leaders coming in, coming into the university, coming into classrooms, not to tell us what to teach, but to talk to us about what they need, about what students need, to, to meet students, to make those connections, make those networks. Uh, but that kind of oversight is anathema to most of my colleagues, and for obvious reasons. Uh, they'd much rather just take the money and be free to do what they want. 
Uh, look, there was a great experiment in the U.S. in the 19th century called the Quincy Experiment. It was in Quincy, Massachusetts. The people of Quincy were furious that their children were graduating from high school and they couldn't read, they couldn't write, they didn't know anything. And the problem was that the exams for high school were being administered by the teachers themselves. And they said, we're changing this. We're going to run the exams. <laughs> the people of Quincy were going to run the exams. And they, uh, they elected a school board and had the school board run the final exam for the students. All the grades shot up, all the performance, performance not just by students, but by the teachers as well shot up because they know someone's paying attention. Well, I would love to see that kind of engagement. I, you know, it was Hillary Clinton, no less, who said it takes a village <laughs> to educate yeah. a child. Well, let's have the whole village involved. Let's not be a city on the hill. Uh, let's have the whole village involved in the education of Australian children. Are there too many universities in Australia? There are too few universities in Australia. Australian universities are incredibly large by international standards. All you have to do is compare Australian universities, say, to the University of California system or the Cal State system or um, any other uh, state university system around the world, and you find that Australian universities are on average, well, uh, the average Australian university would be among the top 10 largest universities in the entire United States. Uh, our universities are too big. Mm. We need more and smaller, more flexible, more entrepreneurial universities that offer more choices to students. This is where I think you, in the book you've got the, 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 the gem of some real reform here. So what have we got, 40, 40 institutions classified Australian universities, another 186 higher education providers. You'd like to see, open it up, let, the, let a thousand flowers bloom and let other smaller institutions come along and offer alternatives. But would they? Because it seems to me there's a sort of homogenous sameness about what universities offer them, you know, right the way from... You know, Southern Cross University to Melbourne. Yeah, maybe not a thousand flowers, but let's have at least a hundred flowers blooming. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get the government out of the accreditation business and do what's done, for example, in North America, where there are uh, nonprofit organizations that accredit universities, uh, where there's a lot more diversity in what a university can do and still be accredited. Uh, the government is ultimately the funder. I mean, the government is providing the Commonwealth-supported places. Well, let's see the Australian government allow any credible institution offer an education supported by the Commonwealth. And then let's see students decide which ones are offering the best service. Uh, you know, I, it, people get very afraid when you start talking about things like vouchers or money following the student. But we need to give students the tools to choose which universities are actually mm. performing for them. And if we did, we would see a whole different set of performance metrics. Right now, the performance metrics is, metric is, what was your research ranking? How many research outputs did you produce? Well, in the United States, U.S. News and World Report rankings are based on things like uh, student increase in salary after they graduate, uh, selectivity mm. of the university, uh, percentage of students who complete within five years or the percentage of students that that remain on a course after the first year i mean the dropout rates sure. at some australian universities are, are, are massive 50 percent plus in the first year now that that to me 
suggest something's going very badly wrong. Uh, you know, somebody, a student has been um, encouraged to take up a course uh, and to take a loan to support themselves, a loan that they're still going to have to repay. Uh, and it turns out that large numbers of them after year one or even year two are dropping out. Something, something's wrong, isn't it? They're being sold. They're not being, they're not being sold what they think they're being sold. We have the data in Australia that if we were to structure it properly, we could give students a very clear picture of what other students have said about a particular degree course at a particular university, what the salaries are of the students coming out of those courses, what the salaries are after three years of the students coming out of the courses. We have all the data with which to do this. Universities have obfuscated that data. First, they fought for years to make the data to keep the data private. <laughs> Amazingly, for the first several years of the quilt survey, the quality indicators in learning and teaching, the data were anonymized, not anonymized yeah. survey participants, anonymized for the universities, you know, university number one, university number two. We didn't know who they were. Now, <laughs> there was a lot of pressure to reveal the universities. Uh, and so now you can get the data by university, but you still can't get it by course. What I would love to see is standardized courses being accredited, whether by TEXA and the Australian government or accredited by an external accreditor. I don't, I, I'm really uh, equanimous about which one it is. But I'd like to see standard courses accredited that then students can choose. Do I want the course in nursing at Sydney or do I want the course in nursing at UNSW? And I can get all these metrics about the nursing course because they're the same course. Right now, the average Australian university offers more than 70 different undergraduate courses. That's not 70 different subjects. There's subjects within those courses. I mean, you can get a Bachelor of Nursing, or you can get a Bachelor of Nursing, Bachelor of Psychology, or you can get a Bachelor of Nursing, parentheses, critical care, or you can get a bachelor, you know, it goes on and on, the, the subdivisions, yeah. and that makes it impossible to compare across universities. Which one's better? Uh, yeah. if, we, if we funded through Commonwealth-supported places a limited number of much more standardized degree courses, we could then produce the statistics that would allow students to make an informed choice about which course they want to take. They're all the same course in the end. Students are all taking the same classes. It's pure marketing to subdivide. Marketing and obfuscation. Let's talk about what's actually taught in universities and um, particularly in the humanities. Robert Menzies uh, was a massive fan of the humanities uh, and, and argued for a, a a degree which would emphasize the humanities as much as sciences. I wonder if he saw the state of the humanities today, whether he'd be quite so enthusiastic. But look, more to the point, you and I, you know, we both have backgrounds in sociology. Uh, I, as I told you earlier, I, I greatly appreciate what I learned through learning classical sociology, and I'm continually referring back to it and, and, and using it as a way of thinking about problems and about the world. But I tell you what, if uh, my granddaughter came up to me and said, I'm thinking of doing sociology at university now, I'd freak. I'd say, do, do, I'll, do anything you like. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll fund your entire university course and put you up in a five-star hotel. <laughs> Just don't do sociology. Do you feel the same way? And if so, well, what's gone wrong? You know, whole discipline... Um, 
is being corrupted, in my view, and and that's that, that that's reflected across the humanities. Look, I, I'm not a humanities basher. I don't think that the problem is that the humanities are. Uh, somehow unique. Uh, the problem is that all of us in the university have been allowed to become incredibly self-indulgent. So whereas a humanities scholar 40 or 50 years ago might have had private political beliefs, might have been a communist, an outright communist, well, that person couldn't teach it in class because that person had to teach for a broad audience, had yeah. oversight, had uh, to answer to somebody for what the person was teaching in class. Now, I, I mean, I've been teaching in Australia 14 years. No one's ever come to observe my class. I could teach anything I want as long as students don't complain. So the problem yeah. is we have let people become very self-indulgent. And let's face it, in the humanities and social sciences, there are a lot of people who hold opinions that would be considered starkly unconventional by the standards of the broader Australian population. If they had to interact with the broader Australian population, they would probably moderate those opinions quite a bit. Allowed to do what they want with absolute power over a group of students who know that all they have to do is get through this class and it's over. Um, yes, they become petty tyrants and become very self-indulgent petty tyrants. Look, the humanities are disappearing in Australia. Uh, university after university is eliminating humanities and social sciences departments. Uh, we're on the way out. And we're on the way out because we have not been useful to our students or to society. And that's very sad to see. I, I would love to see a more flourishing humanities and social sciences that saw itself as part of the mission of building Australia, not part of the mission of tearing it down. The humanities and social sciences committing to tearing down the country, well, they're not going to lose their jobs, but no one's going to replace them. These departments are simply going to disappear. I'm going to make the case against universities again. And it comes back to what I said in my introduction, this spread of bad ideas that has now gone into the corporate sector right through our cultural institutions that began in the universities. How can we not turn around and say to the universities, well, you're responsible for this. You've taught people this way. They've come out thinking this is somehow you know the morally correct way to behave and yet it's it cuts right against uh, the values of most of the Australian population and what's more is is not helpful in righting wrongs. Critical race theory you may be surprised to hear me say this is a perfectly legitimate research program which has produced some really striking results especially in the United States where there are serious problems of racial disadvantage the problem comes when that's all that students get. The problem comes when they hear the critical perspective without hearing any countervailing ideas. The problem we have in the university that I keep coming back to is self-indulgence supported by a lack of accountability. We in the universities are free to teach whatever we want, and perhaps we shouldn't be quite so... I don't want to say quite so free. We, we shouldn't be quite so unmonitored <laughs> in what we do because inevitably we become self-indulgent. We teach only 
the criticisms we want to teach. And that becomes perverted when it comes out into larger society. Students don't remember what much of what they learn at universities. It's a fantasy to think that because some professor indoctrinated students in a humanities classroom, those students went out and started indoctrinating society in corporate HR departments. Uh, you know, the CEOs of those corporations are also embracing these mm. monstrously illiberal uh, programs. It, it's, it's not... Uh, the amount of power that a humanities or social science graduate has, for that matter, the amount that my students are, are capable or, or are amenable to being indoctrinated by me is, is vastly overinflated. Well, now, there, there is that teaching. I mean, the t you can point to it. The teaching is there. The writing is there. It's easy to pull it out and make fun of it. But the real question is, why is anyone listening? That, that's a bigger question than why are we teaching it? The right. last place left where we have free inquiry is at universities. If people often ask me, Salvatore, how do you survive at the University of Sydney when you, uh, you know, espouse uh, such uh, you know, classically liberal uh, principles? And I say because we have formal procedures at the University of Sydney that protect my freedom of expression. If I were at a company in Australia doing the kind of online work I do, writing the kind of articles I write for Quadrant, you know, poking fun at the cancel culture consensus, I would probably be fired. Uh, it's the business leaders who have a case to answer here. They should be not only taking a more courageous stance, they should be coming to the universities and saying, no, 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 what we need in our firms is not more uh, human, right, human uh, resources staff who can police our... Uh, staff with anti-racism seminars <laughs> and mandatory diversity training, they should be saying, what we need are people who have better analytical skills. Mm. Uh, now, if business leaders aren't willing to take that stand, uh, why should you expect the universities to do it? After all, the people at universities who are promoting these, uh, let's face it, what are often fringe and uh, profoundly illiberal points of view, they genuinely hold those points of view. You, you can't say if only they had greater academic freedom, they wouldn't hold them. They would certainly hold them with greater academic freedom. Uh, the problem isn't them. The problem is that society is not pushing back. That society is not there in the universities saying this is what we want. The, the problem is that every time a minister uh, turns down an Australian Research Council grant request on political grounds, the minister does it uh, hesitatingly and almost ducking, uh, you know, not wanting to face the criticism. I mean, what we need are politicians and business leaders who will courageously state their common sense viewpoints, get out in the public square and be proud of their common sense <laughs> viewpoints instead of uh, trying not to get hurt or hit in the crossfire. And I think that's a lot of what we see today in Australia. So let's get back to the nub of your book. Can universities be reformed? Uh, uh, you, you write, if there is a crisis in the Australian university system, it is not primarily a financial crisis, nor is it, properly speaking, a free speech crisis. It is a moral crisis. It is a breach of faith, a betrayal of the public trust. And you say that uh, Western civilization isn't falling in battle with the forces of evil it's dying in the darkness of neglect so when we're talking about reforming universities we're actually talking about some profound 
issues that affect the rest of society, uh, which are perhaps reflected in what you just commented on, the, the reluctance of, of uh, government leaders or politicians even to broach these subjects. Is that where we're at? Is, it, is, it, is reforming universities in the end a question of getting some courage back uh, and, and, and some focus and, and, and calibration in the society as a whole? When government ministers make policies related to universities, and here I don't just mean labor government ministers, I mean liberal government ministers, which we've been living under for the last decade, they talk to the group of eight. They talk to Universities Australia. They talk to the other university industry groupings. They talk maybe, if they're a labor government, to the NTU, you know, the <laughs> labor unions. Uh, they don't seem to talk to students. They don't seem to talk to parents. They don't seem to talk to businesses, employers. That is, they let university policy be driven by the very self-referential uh, terms on which academics and their administrators want to argue them. Uh, what we need in Australia's universities is much more involvement from society and politics to to be that conscience, to be, you know, we need activist boards of trustees or academic senates that actually take a role, want to see what's going on in the university instead of just taking the vice chancellor's report, tabling it, and uh, approving it. You know, we need to see them getting into the nitty gritty of what universities do. Uh, when the University of Sydney was originally founded, its senate was composed of people in New South Wales who had university degrees. Mm. <laughs> that was who they wanted on the Senate to say, well, what should the next generation of university students look like? Well, we need a lot more of that. Instead, what we have are universities that set the goals that they then will meet. Ranking success, you know, check. You know, bring in additional export revenue, uh, check. Uh, educate students? No, that's not really our goal. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, maybe we have to do it in order to get our funding. But I'll tell you, I've been interviewed for dozens of academic jobs, and no one has ever had any information about how good a teacher I am or what I teach in the classroom. It's all about what are your research outputs? Which administrative roles have you held? Well, Salvatore Baboni, um, we'll let people read the book themselves to see what you actually conclude to that question can universities be reformed but I think it's a thank you for the book it's a terrific thought-provoking and um, informative book for those of us outside the sector which makes me think again about some of my prejudices and preconceptions about the university sector and and that is a most valuable thing to have done so thank you very much for joining us on water cooler thanks for reading much appreciated been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listening.